The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Welcome to the You Guys Pick edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, as ever, joined by Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Hello, people. Hey, Hello. everyone. Uh, it's a fun show this week. Um, we have a Slate Plus segment about Carillion, which is a English company, which did some weird things and kind of wound up belly up. We have a one of the weirdest charitable donations that we have seen in a while, which is the Gates Foundation, a large charitable organization, giving tens of millions of dollars to that very worthy recipient, the Japanese government. We're going to work out what on earth is going on there. And weirdly, I kind of love it. I think it's awesome. Um, there is the super pick bonds. That's nothing to do with gum health. That's another one piece of amazing financial engineering, which we will get into because when you reach super pick bonds, you know that the markets are frothy. Hello, Dow 26,000. Um, but let's start since we're almost in Davos. Now we have to do the, we have to start talking about the grand, corporate responsibility, you know, CEOs trying to make the world a better place thing. And that means we need to talk about Larry Fink. Yep. Yep. Um, Jordan, who yep. is Larry Fink and why should anyone pay attention to him? Larry Fink is the grand pooba of BlackRock, which is just like the world's it's the world's biggest fund manager. It's the, the world's biggest, biggest fund manager. It has $6.2 trillion yeah, under but I'm old enough to, re to remember when like, one yeah. trillion was a lot was a of lot, money. Yeah. It's six point two. So that's that's more than that's more than the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, even. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's. I mean, uh, but they're mostly passive. That's the key right. thing. They own a lot of freaking ETFs. They they bought after the financial crisis when Barclays Bank imploded. Barclays had to sell off one of its crown jewels, which was this thing called iShares, which was a big ETF provider, and they sold it to BlackRock, and then overnight BlackRock just became this monster. Yeah, and, you know, they're big, and they're mostly boring, but Larry Fink is also has, you know, political impulses. Let's put it that way. He's He has, he sees himself as a crusader of sorts for both corporate social responsibility and this idea of long-term corporate planning, which dovetails kind of well with his with his business. Well, okay. So, and so but that brings us to this letter he sent so, out. So it does it dovetail. I mean, so yeah, this is true. He, as a very long-term investor, you know, his $6.2 trillion of assets under management is only ever going to really go up rather than down when people give him their money. They generally give it to him for very long periods of time. And so he has a long time horizon. And what he wants to do is encourage the companies that he's investing in to similarly keep, you know, keep their eyes on the long term rather than the short term. This is, you know, one of the standard tropes of modern capitalism. Everyone's like, we have to move past quarterly earnings and think yes. about the long term. The question is. How on earth do you do that, especially when you're a passive investor? Because when you're a passive investor, by definition, 
you have no real control over what you're buying. All you do is you just buy the index and sit back and do nothing. And that brings us to this letter he sent out, which Andrew Ross Sorkin uh, wrote a long sort of florid article about in the New York Times, basically saying it was going to cause a, quote, firestorm <laughs> in corporate boardrooms. And it's, it's a, uh, you know, Larry says a lot of things in this letter, but really it boils down to, hey, going forward, I want you guys to have a very explicit long-term investment strategy that you spell out for all of your shareholders. And I think that companies need to have a better sense of mission, like social mission in this world, and they have to do some good as well. And we are going to somehow try to use whatever heft we have between the one point something you know, trillion in active managed uh, funds that we control and our big passive shares, we're going to try and push you in that direction. Yeah. And Larry Fink did something very similar in 2015. And he talked about how companies needed to invest more. They needed to spend less money on dividends and share buybacks. And lo and behold, they spent more money on <laughs> dividends and share buybacks. So it suggests that his heft is quite limited. So, okay. So, Anna, there is a school of thought, which you can reasonably attribute to Andrew Ross Sorkin and others, which says that if you have $6 trillion un, uh, you know, under management, then that makes you incredibly influential and important. And then there's another school of thought, which is more sort of me and Jonas Serra and people like that, saying if you have almost no control over where that $6 trillion is invested, then really your might is overstated. Where do you fall between these two camps? Far more the latter. Because, again, if you own index funds, how exactly are you going to be affecting how companies act? I mean, yes, in terms of proxy votes, which he's done a little bit. So there are, th there are two ways that you can affect how com companies act um, if you're a passive investor. So the, the, there's the first way, which is what always used to happen in the iShares days and still does happen, I think, to a large extent with Vanguard. Um, and that's you just don't. You, you, you say, look, I'm a passive investor. By definition, I am having no control over anything. I'm just investing in these things. And I'm not going to talk to the companies. And I'm not going to care what they do because it's, only, because I, it's not actually my job to know what they do. It's just my job to buy their shares and hold on to them. One step beyond that is to say, I am a shareholder, and shareholders have certain responsibilities in terms of um, voting, especially during proxy fights. And so if and when there's some big activist hedge fund who starts waging a proxy fight, I have a lot of votes, and I should look at what the company is saying and look at what the activist shareholder is saying and try and work out which one I think is making the more sense and vote with the one which I think is making the more sense. And BlackRock has increasingly started doing that over the past few years. Yeah, and we've seen that. I think Exxon is one of the most notable examples. Yeah, I mean, in that case, they managed to get Exxon to what they... they Basically, we're able to get them to be a little bit more transparent about climate issues, right? Like release some... The effect of climate yeah. change on the long-term viability so, of the company. And, I guess... And, and generally, they get... And what you wind up with in these proxy votes is a certain amount of control over the board. And especially, like, yeah. if there's... If board members are coming up for election, then you can vote for them or you can vote against them. And if you're BlackRock, your shares really do matter because you have a lot of them. So... I guess the problem for a company like BlackRock that does want to exert some control is that in the end, these 
proxy battles tend to be fairly low stakes. Boards tend to not exert that much influence over what companies actually do. Usually, obviously, there are exceptions. And the proxy votes or, you know, resolutions, things like the climate change issue tend to be sort of issues around the margins of the company. It's not the kind of core of what they do. Right. Yeah. And, most- and, yeah. And then the and then so what they're doing now yeah. with this new letter is they're moving away from the low stakes world of proxy fights and moving into the even lower stakes <laughs> world of conversations and having you know having meetings with ceos and board members and And, this doesn't surprise me at all because i think this is what we've seen in a lot of the talk around environmental social and governance investing and socially responsible investing is it involves a lot of policies a lot of memos a lot of meetings and very little action so and and it's true that it's very very hard to see individual companies really changing their ways because of pressure from shareholders to be more socially responsible, that kind of thing. That said, I feel like there's a tiny little bit of moving in the right direction here, which is, and and it's twofold. As Larry Fink says in his letter, when you get involved in proxy fights, it's kind of too late. And you're getting involved in the governance of a tiny handful of companies that you're invested in as opposed to the vast majority of companies you're invested in which you are not getting involved in proxy fights. So what he's doing with this letter is he's saying to all of the companies that he's invested in, hey, we actually care about you. We're not only going to perk up our ears and pay attention to you during a proxy proxy fight. We're going to listen to you and talk to you as a matter of course every single year. And So what he's doing is he's actually engaging with these companies in a way that passive investors have historically never engaged with the full range of companies that they're invested in. And the simple act of engaging with those companies and having conversations with those companies about, you know, long-term strategy and corporate governance and that kind of thing is not going to have any obvious visible effects in any given company. But if you do that with thousands of different companies year in and year out, and you and they have to take that meeting because you're BlackRock, then in aggregate, somewhere along the line, I think the world is going to change and it's not going to change for the worse. Hopefully. My only concern is that it provides cover for not actually doing anything. Well, there's nothing they can do. Right. But companies certainly can do things. And if they can appear to be better corporate citizens because they're taking these meetings with BlackRock, they're... BlackRock will come to them and say, we have these concerns, and they'll write them a memo and say, well, you shouldn't have these concerns because we're doing X, Y, and Z. And BlackRock will file the memo, and everyone will pat themselves on the back for being a great corporate citizen, and nothing changes. So how? So I feel like that's the base case, and I, I absolutely agree that 99 times out of 100, that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, but I just feel like one time out of 100, if BlackRock asks a pointed question and then someone at the company goes, oh, we should have a memo about this, and then they write the memo, and then possibly one time out of 100, someone in the company actually reads the memo and says, oh, well, now we've promised to do this, and then they do it. And then something has actually happened as a result. And it, you you never know exactly when or where it's going to happen as a result. I guess my only point is that in the world of passive investing, if you want those passive investors to act a bit more like owners, then 
this is one of the few ways they can actually do that. Also, it is important to remember that BlackRock does have $1.7 trillion in active management as well. That's not nothing. <laughs> oh, $1.2 trillion? Anyway, like, it has a lot of money in active management, and that is the other reason why this will have effect, because they actually do have analysts covering pretty much every single company in America. And so when the company sits down with BlackRock, they are actually going to be sitting down with someone who understands what that company does. It's not just going to be a bunch of people ticking off the same question about long-term strategy that they ask everybody else. I, I kind of want to talk about a, a political dimension here too, just because I think it's interesting and it's a, another way to understand what Fink's up to, um, which is you have to remember he is a you know he is a again deeply political like figure he there was talk at one point about him possibly getting uh, a tap for treasury secretary under clinton administration um although you know that kind of faded at one point when it became obvious that you know democrats would have a fit about a financier in that position but um you know he his talk about i think in a lot of ways when he's talking about this corporate social responsibility this issue or long-termism, he's trying to carve out space in the political world for an idea of friendly, productive capitalism, right? Um, something that is kind of, uh, you know, th th that there there is still a way markets can function and work and that, you know, Wall Street can do good. And you saw like that 2015 letter you mentioned, right? It mirrored a lot of Hillary Clinton's campaign mm -hmm. platform. There, People forget this, but she had a whole thing about uh, corporate long-termism, right? That was yeah. her her big idea was to kind of change the way cap gains were taxed mm -hmm. to try and make more long-term investors. And so regardless of what his rhetoric was achieving in corporate America, he was getting some positive feedback from the politicians he was dealing with. Um, it seemed like he was making an impact on the Democratic Party. And now um, we've reached this point where the Democrats have taken a harder anti-Wall Street turn, it seems like, or I think that's the feeling thus far, and most people expect the next the 2020 election to look that way. And part of me senses that I, that Fink is still trying to kind of like, still grasping here, just still trying to kind of keep Wall Street's place in one, in, the, in one of the major political parties in this country, keep it from being pushed out entirely. And this is part of that. And I, I think it's hard to, I think if you don't understand it partly in that context, um, I think it's you're missing something about so, it. So, so I guess my question is, yeah, what do you mean by Wall Street? Because I never really consider the buy side to be part of Wall Street, and yeah, I but, don't, but I don't really understand what he's afraid of. If you get an anti-Wall Street Democratic president in power. What could they do which would damage in, the buy side? In Washington, no one gives a shit about the buy side versus sell side right. distinction. <laughs> you know, that's the no, bottom line. But it's could, like, yeah, what's it, he afraid of? It's like literally that you're going to have Elizabeth Warren figure just saying, okay, I'm going to have zero people in finance in my administration. That you are going to be, if you're buy side, sell side, whatever, I'm keeping you out of my treasury department. That you are just not going to have a say. That you are going to have... You're, you are not going to have access to power anymore. And all these people care about some degree of access to power. Um, so I think he is still trying to create, uh, he, he is still trying to put forth the idea that you can have socially responsible capitalism and that I can be the representative of that. And, yeah. you know, so there's someone like Cory Booker, for instance, 
uh, somehow manages to grab the nomination. Mm-hmm. Like, Look, I'm working with friendly capitalists. That's like that's like his best case scenario. That's that's uh, that is how I personally would in, partly interpret what he's doing with this. Letter. And I think if this led to good social policy, that was both understanding that you need to work with the investment community in some ways, but you also need to hold them accountable. I think that would ultimately be a good thing. And I think one of the best possible outcomes of a letter like this. And he makes it very explicit in the letter that one of the reasons he's writing the letter is because he feels that the U.S. government in particular and governments in general have kind of fallen down on their job of making the world a better place and that it is now increasingly falling to companies in general and very large companies in particular to sort of fill that vacuum. And so I do agree that this is a political letter. But yeah, I I also agree that it's not going to have any visible effect on the Trump administration. Well, no, no, absolutely not. (laughs) What does? Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, Anna. Anna is grinning from ear to ear because she gets to talk about super Super picks. Super picks are not water picks. Water picks look after your gums. Super picks look after your balance sheet. What's a water pick? (laughs) A water pick is a wonderful thing which squirts water at your gums and improves your periodontic health. I'm sorry I asked. Okay, Anna, (laughs) Anna, what... What the he- this story is so weird. What the hell is-, is there? So there was this Irish company that announced that they were going to be issuing a super pick. Wait, so okay, what, so we, a pick what, is a type of bond. What does pick stand for? Payment in kind. So normally, when you own a bond, you receive interest in cash. When you have a pick, you receive interest in additional debt. So then, when the bond matures, your principal is higher. So basically, I borrow <laughs> I borrow a hundred dollars from you, and then I have to pay you back ten dollars a year. But instead of paying you back ten dollars a year, I just pay you in more borrowing. Yes, it's amazing. Right, and the reason that this is also quite risky is that usually the companies that are issuing picks are highly levered companies or companies in distress. That's part of the reason they're issuing this because they could potentially have some cash flow problems. And and often what you have is something known as the pick toggle, which is more common than a pure pick. Yes. And a pick toggle means, you know what, most of the time I am going to pay you your coupon in cash, but in the event that I run into serious cash flow problems, I'll have the option of paying you in more debt. Right. You can also have bonds that, especially in restructurings, that they'll say, okay, we're issuing a new instrument, part of the coupon will be paid in cash and part will be paid in pick. So... This company, this Irish company, Ardbeg, is as Ardbeg is a whiskey. Oh no, yeah, sorry. It's a, but okay, sorry. I, got I have confused. no idea how to pronounce uh, the name of this company. Ar, I, it's our something. Ar, they, lots uh, of Ardbeg. They they make they bottle stuff. They bottle. It's booze, a glass basically. bottle. No, yeah, no, they don't no. bottle anything. They just make the, the bottles. bottles. Oh, they only make yes. the bottles. Yeah. Okay, so the, right, which is actually part of the risk because that's a highly commoditized product. So it's a very competitive industry. Not the type of industry where you want so, to have a trade. Anyway, this Irish bottling maker has not 
it, it's not a pick and it's not a toggle oh, pick. Well, yes. It's a super this pick. This is where I want to actually explain. So what the okay. hell is a super pick? Okay, because this is where it gets really cool or not cool depending on uh, depending on where you're coming from. So the other reason that picks tend to be very risky is that they're highly subordinated debt. So we've talked in the past about capital structure. So in a company, if you own senior secured debt, you have the the highest claim on that company's assets. If there's a restructuring, if there's a default, a bankruptcy, you're going to get paid out first. Equity's lowest, mezzanine debt's in the middle. So picks are often a type of mezzanine debt. So you're only going to get paid out if there's money left over after you paid those that secured debt. Also, there's no collateral backing your instrument. Now, there's another type of pick that's called a holdco pick. This is where not only are you subordinated to the senior secured and unsecured debt at the operating company, you're you're junior to all of the debt and you only get paid out because you're at a, the holding company if all of those liabilities um, from the operating company are paid out and money's still left over. Now, the super pick, this is... This is the most dangerous pick of all. Yes. <laughs> this is a holding company of a holding company of an operating company, which means you are subordinated to the debt of the operating company, this pick toggle at the interim holding company. And if all of those people get paid out, then you get paid, which means you're not getting paid. <laughs> so, yeah, basically what this is, it's a margin loan against the equity in the company. The equity in the company, the company is 92% owned by this one guy, Colson. And so what he's essentially doing is he's putting up a whole bunch of his personal stock in the company. He's borrowing against that personal stock, but he's doing it in the form of this glorious super pick structure, which, um, you know, he's paying, what is it, 350 basis points, three and a half percentage points higher than even the hold code debt to be able to raise this cash. Um, but he is an expert in two things, as someone on Twitter told me. He is an expert in... Um, buying up bottling companies on the cheap or rather bottle making companies on the cheap and he's also a expert in um junk rated financial engineering and he seems to be this is a great <laughs> this is like an, an aesthetic achievement for him this yes, is just really like is. this amazing. is this is his masterpiece <laughs> this is everything just come to for it's all coming together for him in this moment so but the, but the reason why we're talking about this i think uh, quite aside from like the aesthetics uh, there are two reasons <laughs> one one is this um interesting fact about um capital structure which is the in Intuitively, a lot of people think that you want to be at the holding company level, that the ultimate owner, the the higher up you get in, in the sort of holding company chain um, is the safest place to be. Whereas, in fact, when it comes to the debt markets, it's the most dangerous place to be. And that if you're lending money to a company, you want to lend it as far down the capital structures you can you want to be at the operating level you don't want to be lending money at the holding company levels this is is one of the counterintuitive facts about the debt market which i i kind of love because the all debt is kind of weirdly counterintuitive but the other main reason why we're talking about this is that it is indicative of a complete craziness in the debt market that yeah. you can sell 
absolutely anything to absolutely anyone and this thing was mass two and a half well, times oversubscribed as right. long as you have yield like as long that that's like the key just people are desperate for yield two here. things yeah i mostly this was a it was originally priced it was going to be priced at 10 percent, and because it was so oversubscribed and went down to eight and three quarters which is shows you how much appetite there was for this the other thing besides yield that it's giving you is that this company does have a tendency to generate free cash flow so because they have a history of doing that, that gives you a little bit of not protection, but makes you feel better about investing in this instrument with this company. And the other thing you get is you, you don't you're not secured by any actual assets, but you are secured by a bunch of shares in the company. Um, so in the event that the company does become insolvent, there is a reasonably good chance that you wind up taking over a bunch of Bottling Bo- bottle plants? bottling bottle. plants or bottle manufacturers, um, and maybe if you're a certain type of hedge fund, and I believe that Anna might have even worked for one of these hedge funds in the past, you kind of you you feel like your downside in that sense is um, protected because like the worst case scenario is you wind up opening you you wind up owning a business which is actually quite profitable and quite a good business to own. Unless the equity is totally wiped out. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It's, are you, and then just, you're just staring down the bottom uh, of an empty right. bottle. This is part of the problem with picks often is that they essentially are almost equivalent to equity. And so you actually have very little protection, just like normally yeah. in cap structure. And then, although this is, again, like the, the other thing which you can say about this is there is so little equity in this company. There's only 8% of the company is traded. The other 92% is privately held and so if you do want to buy equity in the company maybe this is one way of doing it perhaps (laughs) it's also a the they're doing this partly to pay a dividend to the original owners there's so much financial right which is which is is only important again to talk about how risky this potentially is because that's a really bad use of debt I want to, to follow just, up on this company. I want to just like track them, like like two years from now, just I like mean, come back see how how did this work out for we're, everyone. We're not we're not we we considered and rejected the idea of talking about Apple this week. Um, <laughs> Apple, of course, more than any other company in the history of the world, has borrowed money to pay dividends to its shareholders, um, and it did that for tax reasons, and those tax reasons are now moot. Um, And this is, I guess, the reason I'm bringing this up is because Apple is one of the biggest lenders in the world. Yeah, It has hundreds of billions of dollars of investments in bonds, which it's lending to corporate entities. And other companies in the world are being able to borrow money quite cheaply from Apple. And now that Apple's tax situation has kind of finally been resolved, thanks to the Trump tax bill, there's a very good chance that Apple will stop being such See, a big lender. I, I don't fully, I didn't fully understand that argument. I saw it uh, like floating around the internet because I think it was, it was on financial, it was on Alphaville, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because Apple still has this giant cash hoard that it needs. But it also it's, has debt and it can now pay down its own debt instead of having to that's invest true, in but other people's e- debt. Even so, they're still, you know, all that money they're, quote, bringing home is just being transferred to a different account somewhere in Nevada. Yeah. Like, they still need to store their cash somewhere. They right, need to but, put it in but, some sort of instrument. Think- if you're investing your cash, yeah. like, you know how the, the classic piece of personal finance advice is never have a savings account and credit card debt at the same time yeah. because that's really stupid. That's basically where Apple is. They have 
credit card debt in the form of $100 billion of loans outstanding. They have a savings account in the form of like $200 billion of cash. The sensible thing to do if you don't have tax issues and you don't have tax issues anymore is to use your assets to pay off your debts. I, it can be depending on what the rate on you're getting back, what you borrowed at and what you're getting in returns on your assets, I guess. I mean, it may make sense. Also, in, I guess, but what you're saying in the end is that they're going to be lending less. It's like, a, there's no, yeah. Apple is not at heart a bank, right? It is not <laughs> Apple's- Not yet. Not, I mean, people have suggested. <laughs> no, but, no, but it is not Apple's job and nor would its shareholders want it to be a company which borrows money on the capital markets in order to lend it out to other companies. That's what banks do. That's yeah. not what Apple does. I mean, it's effectively what Apple has been forced to do by tax law. But now that it's no longer forced to do that by tax law, I don't see why they should want to continue doing that. Well, we did, you know, <laughs> rather than continue this, we said we weren't going to talk about Apple. Let's still, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, I still think in the end it's there. Yeah. I, I, I still see it. They have to do something with their money. Like they, they're not going to keep it in cash. And maybe that means less borrowing in terms of corporate bonds and putting more of it into treasuries. I don't know. But it's they, they are in the end, even if they pay off all of their outstanding debts, still going to be sitting on a, a, a lot of money that they aren't going to directly return to shareholders. They do like having a big um, you know, pile of gold to, you know, that is one of Steve Jobs' legacies. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. We said we weren't going to talk about Apple. This could become a very long conversation. We're not going to talk about Apple. <laughs> this episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. All right, so let's talk about polio, if we're not talking about Apple. <laughs> um, Jordan. Yeah. You sent us all an email this week. Yeah. With a, I was an article, an as article usual. attached. And you said basically, why is is the, why is the Gates Foundation paying off Nigeria's debts to Japan? Yes, which is what I mean. So Nigeria had a seventy six million dollar loan, I believe, from Japan for to which was meant to help them eradicate polio, and then the Gates Foundation was paying off that loan. And I was just sort of like, why is this an arrangement? <laughs> why, what, what was the, I was like, I, where did this come from? Why, why is this the setup? How did they, this seems kind of like a Rube Goldberg device for uh, eradicating infectious disease. And then Felix went and looked into it. And it seems like there actually is a really good reason for I mean, why you so, would arrange yeah, this. The, on, on its face, it is a crazily stupid thing to do because 
this is a sunk cost, right? Nigeria has already spent this money, like fighting polio. Um, it already owes this money to Japan. If you, as the Gates Foundation, come in and just make a payment from on behalf of Nigeria to the Japanese government, that has no effect on fighting polio. It just has an effect on the Nigerian government's fiscal situation. And there's no particular reason to believe that improving the Nigerian fis government's fiscal situation to the tune of $76 million is going to help fight polio. So if what you really care about is fighting polio, polio, which is what the Gates Foundation really cares about, they should spend that money on fighting polio and not on paying off sovereign debts. What wasn't obvious from the article, but which actually explains everything, was that this wasn't done just out of the goodness of the Gates Foundation's heart, you know, a week ago. This was the culmination of a deal which they entered into back in 2014. And in 2014, the Gates Foundation promised to repay this debt if Nigeria met certain criteria in terms of vaccinating its population against polio. Yeah. And so the idea here seems to be that, you know, and you wrote about this, but is that if you give a country money to deal with a public health crisis, the ministers there may or may not use it for its intended purposes. The, you know, whoever runs public health in Nigeria may pocket the cash, may spend it on, you know, God knows what vanity project. It just, it's hard to tell how your money's actually going to get used. And you deal with all those corruption issues that we've discussed many times on this show. Um, but if you make it a loan, and then promise on to if promise that you will you know then forgive that debt or pay that debt off um you know that the debt will be erased should you accomplish it then you're going to actually maybe see some results so it seems like a, a clever instrument for doing this i guess i'm kind of curious why it has to involve like sovereign nations and japan and, you know why that, that's that's the thing which i love about this that's the financial engineering bit of this which i really love yeah so the financial engineering still confuses me i get like the basic mechanism for why this might be a better way to do development grants, then it kind of gives you this added layer of protection and added layer of incentive. That's very cool. But yeah, I guess, why is Japan's treasury in any way involved in this? And the answer to that is, if the Gates Foundation goes up to the Nigerians and says, we're, going, we're not going to give you $75 million to fight polio, we're going to lend you $75 million to fight polio. And then in four years time, if you have fought polio, then we will forgive you the loan. At that point, it becomes almost impossible for the Gates Foundation not to forgive the loan, and it also becomes almost impossible for the Nigerian government to ever pay that loan back. So no matter what the Nigerian government does or doesn't do in terms of fighting polio, at the end of four years, is there any chance that they're just going to turn around and give the money back to the Gates Foundation? And the answer is, no, not really. The Gates Foundation is not going to start taking them to court to right. get their money back, that would be like a really bad look for all concerned. And so it's basically an unenforceable and debt which would never get paid. So it's not really a debt. However, at all. if Japan lends the money, then it's a sovereign debt. Or, or, or I guess or it's not as, well yeah. It, it is. It's, yeah, it's, it's a sovereign a, it's, debt. It's a Paris Club debt. It's a it's overseas development assistance. It's a loan from a government which is very important to Nigeria. Um at concessionary rates and those loans generally always get paid back and if nigeria defaults on that loan 
then that completely destroys Nigeria's relationship, not only with Japan, but with all other bilateral lenders. Right. And Nigeria has been taking on more foreign debt recently, so that's important. So Nigeria really, really wants to keep on the good side of its bilateral lenders, including Japan. And that means that it is going to make that payment. If the Gates Foundation doesn't come in and make the payment for it, Nigeria will make that payment. So since you have a very large, very wealthy country that's willing to you know, enter into these sort of financial arrangements in, I guess, in partnership with big foundations, do you think we might see more development funding done this way? Because it does seem like a clever way of... Um, you know, dealing with some of the inherent problems with global health and with, you know, yeah. their, and, 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 and the answer and the answer to that question is not only will we see it, we have seen it. And oh, there, really? was, okay. there was one deal which preceded it with Pakistan, which was slightly smaller, um, not much smaller. And there's another deal outstanding also with Pakistan, which is they all basically have the same structure. And there are now that Nigeria looks like it's pretty much eradicated polio. There were two cases in 2016 and zero cases in 2017. There are only two countries in the world now which have polio. Um, that's Pakistan and Afghanistan. Between them, they only had 17 cases in 2017. So we're very, very close to this, you know, long, long dream of finally eradicating the disease entirely. And this is a nice model because there are certain things that government can do that it would be very difficult for a nonprofit to do. When you're talking about polio in Nigeria, part of the problem had been the you know, Boko Haram insurgency. So that they couldn't get into certain areas of the country, so it made it harder for them to inoculate. Now, if you just had a nonprofit coming in, they can't do anything about that. You know, you're not going to have the Gates Foundation fighting Boko Haram, but if they're helping to incentivize the government, the government is going to prioritize polio eradication and they are able yeah. to do certain things again it that- is it is no coincidence that the last countries in the world with polio are war-torn countries and it's you know pakistan it's afghanistan and it's northern nigeria and and a little bit of there's a couple of others but like it's the places where it's the hardest to do mass vaccination they're obviously going to be the places where you're going to which are war-torn and then on top of that even if you ignore the whole war bit and the fact that only governments can really enter into these kind of mass vaccination um, campaigns anyway, in general, I'm a strong believer that the people doing public health in any given country should be the health ministry and should not be foreign NGOs parachuting in and doing it all themselves because like they reckon they're better at it than the local government. What you, you really do want that those skills and those abilities to be built up within the government and the ministries and civil society rather than having to rely on foreigners. Because often when you're talking about problems with foreign aid, it's because countries are becoming too dependent either on NGOs or too dependent on foreign aid in general to fund their their to their fund of their entire budgets. So historically, foreign aid to battle health crises has been very effective. But foreign aid in general in other ways sometimes has not because it hasn't been as targeted, because it hasn't been tied to outcomes like this was. 
So what we have, it seems, Jordan, like, have we answered your question? Have, have we finally yeah, found yeah. Some, some financial engineering which is good? Yeah, as I, 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 and I, I'm no longer befuddled at the the Gates Foundation's uh, use of its philanthropic dollars. I mean, I, I, I hasten to add that not all aid-related financial engineering, or you know, is, is a good thing. And I'm sure that Anna and I can start reminiscing about like bonds which were issued by Columbia and were linked to World Bank debt and all manner of weird stuff, which like really didn't work out well at all. So when these things work, it's it's by no means preordained, but it's always a, a happy day. Numbers round. Let's have a numbers round. Um, yes. Jordan, do you have a number? Yeah, mine's simple. It's stupid. It's fun, but we're going to talk about it. It's 20. You know what it is. Everyone listening knows what it is. It's the number of companies on the short, the number of cities on Amazon's HQ2 shortlist, um, three of which are in the DC metro area. So I'm just like... You know, really excited for the DMV to have to like become Amazon Central now. Like, I just, the, I just like the, the, the Department of Motor Vehicles. Yeah, that's the. It's also the DC, the the DC, uh, Maryland, Virginia area. So oh, is the that, D, the is, DMV? Is that what DMV stands for? Yes, exactly. So I, it just like people are joking about just like how you know, I mean, he's. I mean, it's pretty clear Jeff Bezos looks like he's going to build a headquarters next to his giant server farm in Northern Virginia and his mansion in D.C., right? Like, that's that just that's what's happening at it's this point. It's based on Bezos commuting time. Uh, but this is, so, I, I forget who I was talking to, or but so, someone was bringing up how, like, apparently this is the way a lot of executives make their decisions for headquarters in the end. Like, they talk about access to workers and skills and, you know, agglomeration and all that crap, but really it's just, like, personal stuff and nostalgia or whatever the hell they want to go back somewhere. I don't know. I, I just can't imagine that given the choice, Bezos would want to spend more time in D.C., but maybe, I mean, he's he's not a normal human being. Maybe he would. He's got a nice house there. He already, he's got a newspaper there that he seems to really like. I think it makes perfect sense. Um, my number is $12.99. Um, since Kathy's not here, I don't need to say that it's twelve point nine nine, and that's the number of dollars. I can just say that it's twelve dollars and ninety nine cents, um, which is the latest annual to monthly conversion ratio data point. Um, one of the things that you often find um, when you have a subscription product of any description is they'll say like it's a hundred dollars a year or ten dollars a month, and you think to yourself, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I save a little bit of money if I pay $100 a year, but if I don't pay $100 a year, then I'll pay $120 a year monthly. So there's a little bit extra for paying monthly. Um, if you look at Amazon Prime, it wasn't $100 a year or $10 a month. It was $100 a year or $11 a month. And Amazon Prime really was pushing you to do this annual thing, and they made it very uneconomic to do the monthly thing. But now they've switched it. So now it's $100 a year or $13 a month, which is crazy. They're basically saying it's $100 a year if you pay annually or $156 a year if you pay monthly, which is more than 50% extra. And that's basically at this point them just saying, if you can't afford $99 a year up front, we don't even want you as a prime customer. 
Although they are, they, they I don't think they're doing it for low income. Like, right, they ha- because hadn't there wasn't there something else previously that they did to? They had a discount for people right. who receive food stamps, for instance, yeah. who are on means tested benefits. So I, I think that this only applies to. Granted, it still applies to middle class people, and that's you know. I, I I mean, like, why why else would you do it? Why else would you make such a huge delta there? I mean, yeah, no, the I only agree. other reason is that there was gaming going on that people would sign up for Amazon Prime for the holidays and then cancel it. Oh. And mm-hmm. then, like, the next time they needed to send out a bunch of things with free shipping, they would sign up again, and then they would cancel. That still might be a good, like, a good deal, though. For, like, two months, it still might work. I guess this just ups what they'll yeah. make for those people, right. from those people who are gaming it, and there are, if there are enough of them, that extra buck might make a difference somewhere. So my number is 145 years. There was this really cool economic paper by the um, National Bureau of Economic Research that looked at average asset returns for different asset classes from 1870 to 2015. And it, it was really interesting in terms of what they found because they found that, you know, real estate actually ended up having slightly higher returns than equity. They found that lower bond returns were not actually necessarily correlated with lower economic growth. They also found, kind of to give more credence to Thomas Piketty's ideas, that the average rate of return on capital is significantly more than the average growth rate of these economies, because it was over 16 advanced economies was where this information was coming from. And it's just a tremendous amount of fascinating data that I really like, because I I'm much more of a fan of economic history and what has actually happened as opposed to economic theory and what people think should happen. Yeah. So tell me about the real estate thing. That's the thing which jumps out at me. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean like commercial real estate? So it often has to do with rental incomes. Yeah. Real estate it, real estate as an asset class. So includes commercial real estate, correct? It's not just primary homes. But it does, But the problem with investing in real estate is always like... This is not an asset class where you can easily reinvest your dividends. It does pay literally rents. Like if you own a place mm-hmm. and rent it out, you're getting rents and those rents yeah, are lovely on. things. But it's very, very hard to buy a little marginal chunk of real estate with your monthly rent check. No, but you can eventually buy more houses or apartments and just become a landlord, <laughs> slumlord, rentier, whatever you it's, want. It's entirely, People do it's this. entirely yeah. possible, but I'm just saying that in terms of calculating returns, um, the one of the, inter- one of the advantages of having something which is securitized yeah. in a, a bond or a stock is that the minute you get that payment, you can reinvest it back into that asset class in real estate. That is your, your time horizon becomes much, much longer, and it can take you a few years before you finally mm-hmm. like put together enough money to buy a new property. I, I've been um, meaning to read this paper, but I also have a suspicion, and maybe I'll come back and report on whether I'm right about this, that weirdly some of its findings about returns may fuck with some of Piketty's data um, and because of the way he calculates the wealth gap, or not he, some of his associates who've calculated the wealth gap, and he's adopted their numbers. So I think it could have some kind of it could be a mixed bag for uh, for that crew. I don't know. I have to go look at it and see. But it does show that R is bigger than G. Yeah, R is a fuckload bigger <laughs> a than <lot> G. Bigger. <laughs> okay, so I think that's it. We still are going to talk about Carillion, which is coming up in Slate Plus. If you are a Slate Plus 
subscriber. But if you're not, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Keep on emailing us on slatemoney at slate.com, especially if you are a cocktailologist who sends a massive essay to us saying why Jordan is wrong about old fashions. Thank you very, very much for that. That was awesome. Um, do listen to the Culture Gab Fest, which comes out on Wednesday mornings with Julia Turner, the amazing editor of All Things Slate, and also Stephen Metcalf and Dana Stevens talking about basically everything in the week in culture, whether it's film or television or music or podcasts. They talk about the whole thing. Thanks to Dan Trader for producing this podcast, and we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.